My favorite thing to say is I'm an equity guy. I don't want to be levering up to the hilt. Leverage can be a good thing. It's a good tool. But if you're levering up as much as possible, you know, 75, 80, sometimes 90 percent, you know, it's a multiplier. So it's either going to go up or it's going to go down, but it's going to be one of those two. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Dmitry Chabotarev, and today we're learning about industrial real estate investing. We learn about how he got into industrial real estate investing, how he got started in real estate investing right at the height, at the beginning of the Great Recession as real estate values were really tanking in many areas, and he took it head on. He was buying some very interesting deals that he's going to teach us about when he got started. Then fast forward to today with the massive industrial deals that he's doing. He also highlights for us some red and green flags for the passive investors out there who are considering investing in industrial real estate. We also dig into ways that these deals can go wrong, where opportunity may be in the industrial real estate space and what may be coming down the road as the economy continues to change, interest rates continue to go up, inflation rages. You guys know everything that's going on. And today we dig into his thoughts about the future as well. So there's a lot of great information in this one. Very, very packed full of knowledge from Dimitri for us. So you're going to enjoy it. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you'd like to learn more about what I do, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call with us, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. We really hope that we can help you build wealth on Main Street. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. If you know anyone who could use, use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Dmitry Chabotarev. Without any further ado, let's talk about some industrial real estate. Here we go. Dimitri, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about what you do and how you invest in real estate? Yep, absolutely. So I'm a real estate developer. I buy industrial buildings all over the United States and lease them out for cash flow. Typically, we'll be leasing to uh, various credit tenants, cold storage, self-storage, wet labs, dry labs. We will lease to cannabis operators, but in a landlord-tenant capacity only. Logistics, bridge, anything industrial will do. Awesome. I love it. And industrial is one of those asset classes that seems to be gaining in popularity, especially as single family and, and now multifamily in many markets has become much more difficult to get deal flow. I think one of the things when people think about industrial is they say, well, these deals are so huge. I don't even know where to get started or where to find the money if I want to get started investing in industrial deals. So how did you kick it off and you know find those initial funds to get started? So it's funny, you know, people talk to me and have been talking to me since the beginning of my career about, you know, hey, you know, I'm doing single family flips and 
you know, I want to get into commercial one day, but they're scared of doing so for whatever reason, right? Maybe because the numbers are so big and they think, well, you know, more risk, you know, what do I do here? But I never did residential. I started literally from day one doing commercial deals. As far as I'm concerned, you know, a deal's a deal. And, you know, the numbers are the numbers are bigger, but they're small commercial deals. So the way I got started was back in 2008, we were doing land deals. So we were buying uh, land in Las Vegas, Vegas, North Vegas, Henderson, infill properties that we were buying and rezoning from lower density to higher density. So it would be, you know, residential estates zoning to R4 multifamily or, you know, C1 to C2, which is, you know, retail zoning or MD to M1, which is an industrial zoning. And like some of the deals were as small as in the early, early, early days, as small as two, three hundred thousand. And then it got to, you know, five to eight hundred thousand. And then it got to, you know, one to two million. And then all of a sudden we're buying industrial buildings. You know, last year or year and a half ago, we bought a 450,000 square foot industrial campus in Massachusetts. Wow. From a cereal company. And it took like an entire day to walk the campus. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's different. So, you know, you kind of just start where you start and you, and you can get bigger and bigger. The way we did it with investors is, you know, we went out and made relationships, networked, networked hard. I used to, I like to say to you, I live here in Orange County, California. I used to drive to LA, to San Diego, to San Bernardino. There was a networking meeting. I was in a suit. And I was coming up, shaking people's hands, saying, hey, my name's Dmitry Chbotarev. Here's what I'm working on. Here's what I'm interested in. What are you doing? Nice. I mean, that's. Uh, I think a lot of people are afraid to take that first step to just put yourself out there and kick it off, right? But you made that and took that first step to get started. Now, you say about doing deals in when you got started in 2008, you said Henderson, Nevada. I don't know all that much about that area, but... I think my understanding is that a lot of Nevada was like annihilated by the Great Recession as far as real estate values go. Vegas. I mean, how did you deal with that? I mean, that's a that was probably a good time to be a buyer, I would guess. So yes, it was. So 2008, 2007, 8, 9, 10, up to 11, it was, you know, a big old downhill slope. And 2011 was the bottom of the market, at least in in Vegas. I always lived here in Orange County, but we did deals in Vegas and raising money for those deals back then was just to give everyone an idea. The market fell 80%. It was the the hardest crash of any market in the US. It's crazy. But where there's, you know, where there's a crash, there is an opportunity, right? So we were looking at deals that we were buying at 20, 30 cents on the dollar back then. It was really, I think about the market now and I think 20, 30 cents. I'll take it, right? <laughs> but the thing is, the other side of it was people didn't want to invest because they thought, well, this market's not going to recover. What's going to happen? There's so much risk. Why are you investing in in Vegas, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the other side of you know the opportunity was it was hard as hell to raise money. But when we presented it to investors, I would say, here's what the value was. Let's say it was worth you know, a million dollars before the recession. Well, we're buying it from the bank at $200,000. So 
what's the likelihood that it's not going to recover to some degree? And then you look at comps and you see, okay, well, you know, this zoning, it's worth today 200000 because we're buying it from the bank. Let's say it's going to be worth 600000 at that zoning, which is only a small jump to where to the previous value. But then on top of that, you look at comps of the new zoning. Again, this was the you know, land rezoning deals. And you say, look, we're going to make profit and our costs are low. We can make this deal happen. So you know, it's just a matter of kind of going to the fundamentals of buying real estate, right? You try to buy on a very low, low price and you try to maximize your margin. We were buying in all equity, which we still do, meaning we don't have any debt on it. We're If we have to wait or if we have to reposition the deal, we have the time to do so. We're not risking our money. And we did very well, to say the least. It was good timing as well. Yeah, very good timing. I mean, things were on sale. And like you say, you know, in hindsight, a lot of investors who were active at that time say, man, I should have bought everything I could possibly get my hands on with the benefit of hindsight, you know, it would have worked out very well, almost, almost no matter what you bought. Maybe, maybe not a hundred percent, no matter what you bought, but fast forwarding. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying almost, almost good time. You can just buy any, throw spaghetti on the wall. It's a great real estate transaction back then. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So fast forwarding to today, I think a lot of folks, when they hear about these types of deals and you think, uh, you said 450,000 square foot in single tenant industrial facility from a cereal company in Massachusetts, just to pick on that example, the big question that really on our minds is like, how are we making money in this deal? Presumably we're maybe buying it off of the cereal company, but why would they sell it to us at a price where you know we're going to be satisfied with our return, particularly if we're not using any leverage? Like, How do these numbers... Has this deal come together to turn into a satisfactory return for us as investors? So here's here's the thing. We didn't buy it as a single tenant deal. We actually bought it as a vacant, I want to say building, but it was technically eight buildings. So the, the backstory of that deal is it was an off-market deal. We were buying other properties in Massachusetts. <laughs> Excuse me. We were buying other properties in Massachusetts already. Uh, this deal came to us off-market from uh, Post, the cereal company. What happened was Post had just bought a company called Weetabix as a private equity transaction, and they were they were fire selling the real estate. So they were buying you know that company for the brand. They didn't want the real estate. We got it for a steal. So we bought that four hundred fifty thousand square feet for six million. We originally had it under contract at nine million, but then we renegotiated it, and it was a it was a whole to do. But we ended up with it for six million, eight buildings. Uh, I'd say six out of the eight are very modern, you know, beautiful buildings. Two of them are, you know, they need a little bit of work. Either way, our margin was super high. We came in with a tenant in tow for about 130,000 square feet. And then we started marketing. We have internally, and although we have the resources, it really doesn't require that many resources, right? Everything's kind of a bonus. We have an internal sales team that goes and markets directly to tenants. So we ended up getting another 130,000 square foot tenant through our internal means. And then we always use local brokers. And then we have national broker relationships. And we typically do non-exclusives, right? Where we have a non-exclusive with a broker saying, look, if you bring a tenant, we're going to pay you. If you don't bring the tenant, then, you know, if we bring the tenant or if someone else brings a tenant, you know, sad times, but you know, whoever, whoever brings the deal is the one who gets paid, but we pay really well. 
So, you know, the margin in that deal was we bought it super low. We bought it vacant. We didn't buy it on performa numbers saying, oh, you guys are going to make so much money. You know, everyone tries to sell based on that. No, we did an analysis. We determined what it was. And at full cash flow in all equity, we're at 25% cash on cash. Now, that being said, the risk that we took was, of course, that we bought a vacant building and we knew that we could get it leased up. Now, that being said, we have the tools to do so, but then we also bought it again in all equity. So should we get delayed for whatever reason, we have the time to make that happen without, you know, having a lender take our asset because it got delayed for whatever reason. Yeah, you do really, uh, you are taking a risk, but by using all equity, you reduce some of that risk from a a cash flow and lending standpoint and all that kind of thing. Now, mentioned a a retrade from 9 million to 6 million. I'm not sure on the timing of this deal, but we've seen retrades happen due to costs of capital and interest rates going up and all that kind of thing. Was that retrade driven by cost of capital, your due diligence, like let's dig more into that and how you got a a better deal. Okay. So it was a bit of an opportunistic retrade. We started the transaction two years ago, 2020, right? Uh, Technically we started at the very end of 2019. So when 2020 hit March of 2020, you remember a little, little COVID action happened and there was a lot of uncertainty. Now we were certain that we were going to buy the deal, but the value of things was very uncertain at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it was an opportunistic retrade. We came to, to post and said, listen, do you have another buyer lined up? And they were like, no. And we said, do you want to try to find another buyer? He said, no. We said, okay, well, you know, we would like to get a discount. I'm going to be honest with you. We pushed for an even crazier discount <laughs> than, than, than $3 million. Uh, but we ended up doing it. Uh, several things happened. One, we actually pieced it out. So uh, the campus itself, it's 450,000 square feet. It's kind of in three separate chunks. So we bought the middle chunk, which then kind of locked them into the fact that if we didn't close on the other two, they would have to find two separate buyers, which makes it even more difficult. And then on top of that, we said, look, we're going to buy this other chunk, but we want a million and a half discount. And then here, a million and a half discount. And we ended up because of the COVID uncertainty, doing extremely well on that acquisition. But it really boiled down to, um, you know, it was just a, it was a good time. There's a lot of uncertainty and whether, where there's uncertainty, especially when you're buying from a corporate owner, you know, the corporate guys, they just want to get it off their books, right? So what they're most interested in is someone who's going to close on the deal, not necessarily maximizing their return, like someone like you or I would. As a, as a value add person, they just, you know, they want to look good to their higher ups that, Hey, we got this thing. We, we sold it and it worked out. Especially at that time when everybody in corporate was really trying to CYA so they could keep their jobs, whether they're higher ups or, or lower downs or, you know, post to such a big company in particular, that $3 million difference at the end of the day is maybe somewhat of a rounding error for them. So you saw an opportunity and there was a lot of uncertainty in the market at that point. So definitely, uh, definitely had to go for it. So I'd like to f- like focus the discussion a little bit on providing guidance to passive investors who are looking at 
industrial type of investments and things that they should look for, whether it's in sponsors or particular deals, you know, from, from an insider's perspective, what do you consider maybe some red flags or, or green flags or things that stick out to you that newer industrial passive investors should know? Well, so <laughs> there's a lot of red flags, you know, from the perspective of, <laughs> I mean, let me say it like this. My favorite thing to say is I'm an equity guy. I don't want to be levering up to the hilt. Leverage can be a good thing. It's mm-hmm. a good tool. But if you're levering up as much as possible, you know, 75, 80, sometimes 90%, yeah, it's a multiplier. So it's either going to go up or it's going to go down, but it's going to be one of those two. If something goes wrong that's unexpected and you have leverage on a deal, you're essentially screwed. So all equity deals uh, is something that I I think makes the most sense. That being said, some green flags. If you're if you're looking at the acquisition, not from a perspective of you know you got the green in your eyes, like oh, we're going to make so much money, we're going to make so much money. If you're looking at it from the fundamentals of, am I buying this building? at a good value. Not so much like, I'm going to bring this tenant and it's going to be amazing and blah, blah, blah. But am I buying it at a good value? Is the market strong? If you have a tenant lined up, are the financials of that tenant solid? Uh, If you don't have a tenant lined up, are you being conservative with your, your rent expectations? Is the vacancy in the market available? We get bogged down with the details of a specific deal. But a lot of times, if you step back from that specific deal and get that excitement out of your, you know, your mind and your heart and just go back to the fundamentals of, is this really a good deal or am I trying to make it a good deal in my mind? You will make the right decision. So just don't make emotional decisions, make good decisions based on the basic principles that honestly, we all know. Nice. Nice. Okay. So that's a good point. It could be hard to get that emotion out of things, particularly about this next thing I want to ask you about is we've seen a lot of maybe broader. There's a sense that in many areas, you know, the, the industrial space is, you know, kind of dying in the U S or going away for a million reasons. We don't need to necessarily dig into here, but that has led in many areas, including my market where I live in Richmond, Virginia, a lot of folks redeveloping those properties into multifamily. And you've mentioned about doing rezoning and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And we've seen so many shifts in the market and all that. Just wanted to ask you your thoughts on those kinds of conversions of older industrial properties, maybe warehouses into multifamilies. Do you delve into that? Have you looked into that? And what are your thoughts on that as a, as a strategy? So you're right. That is a huge topic. <laughs> and I could honestly, I can and have spoken for many hours on that topic. In a nutshell, I'd say, look, high bay, single story industrial is what's in right now. There is a huge push across every single aspect of industrial, of the industrial sector uh, for growth. So whether it's for manufacturing, you know, traditional manufacturing is coming back to the US, semiconductors, cold storage, everything, right? Uh, so traditional industrial is coming back, which is a big deal. It's the backbone of our country. However, these older style buildings that are multi-story that have, you know, these giant elevators, these freight elevators, you know, maybe they have 16 foot clearance or, or even less, those are being repositioned. And 
there's absolutely opportunity. If you look at certain markets, and it's a lot of markets nowadays, multifamily is in massive need, right? And the cap rates for multifamily for buying existing are not, it's not even worth buying, right? So if it makes sense in the market to take, to buy a cheap asset that you can reposition as long as it doesn't have environmental issues or something like that, uh, whether it's repositioning an office building or an industrial building, it absolutely does make sense to um, reposition that to multifamily. Depends on the specific asset, but I've seen a lot of it. And uh, even repositioning within industrial, right? Going from traditional manufacturing to self-storage. Seeing that a lot. So yeah, every deal has a good opportunity and everyone has their own vision for it. But there's a lot of good opportunity there, especially in markets like what you're talking about, you know, Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt markets, where there's a lot of older industrial buildings that need to be repositioned. There's good opportunity. I guess one of the things about those buildings is that depending on the type of manufacturing or industry that was happening there before, some of them can be very dirty, right? With things that maybe you chemicals that maybe you can't, you know, get out of the out of the property. So imagine you would capture that probably you figure that out probably pretty early on in the due diligence process, maybe before you had something under contract, where would that type of, type of due diligence fall in, in your process? So anytime I'm buying any real estate of any sort, it typically you're getting, I mean, if it's land, you're getting soil, uh, you know, soil tests, environmental, uh, you know, phase one, sometimes phase two, uh, and an Alta survey. Uh, when you're buying a building, you're getting the same things. So really your phase one environmental, which depending on where you're at, sometimes you get a phase two. And typically the seller will actually pay for that. You, know, you can request environmental. And depending on the state you're in, depending on what you're doing, you put it on the seller. You say, look, there's this legacy environmental issue. Maybe they knew about it. Maybe they didn't. But you either get a discount for the remediation that you're going to do, or you have them do the remediation. Or if it's in a state like Michigan, for example, where everything is, you know, literally every single property that exists in Michigan pretty much has an environmental issue because of, you know, the automotive industry and stuff. Uh, the state itself has essentially, you know, no liability laws where you know, they understand that, hey, if you're in the state of Michigan, this is the way it is, right? <laughs> so you just make sure to cover your bases. You have good legal you review that stuff and you make sure that you're not taking on liabilities that you know, you're not planning for, right? Okay. Okay. Makes sense. So before we move on to the last part of the show, I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your thoughts on the future of the market as interest rates continue to go up. Now, granted, you're not using leverage in your own business, but no. real estate in general is subject to the cost of money. It doesn't, you know, you're, maybe you're selling to somebody who's going to use leverage. So it's going to affect you in some way, cap rates, whatever. What do you think about everything moving forward, especially with, you know, even though we've tried to redefine the word uh, recession with the recession going on, all that kind of thing. What do you think? Well, so we've kicked the can down the road a lot, right? Even 2008, you know, we bailed out the banks and there were REOs. We talked about it earlier, but those REOs, you know, there were supposed to be way more and then it just didn't happen, right? It didn't happen the way that it was supposed to be. We kicked the can down the road and here we are. We're down the road. We're seeing the can again and we've just injected trillions of dollars into our economy and we're starting to see a recession. The recession's going to happen. 
that being said, it's going to affect everyone. It's going to affect every industry because like industrial is doing extremely well. And the margins for deals are still there. We're still doing deals. We're buying a, a building in Eugene, Oregon right now, 107,000 square feet. And we're conf- I'm confident on that transaction because our margin is solid. And we are buying it in all equity, meaning you know we're, we're going to be fine in a 0.4% vacancy market, right? So there's, there's absolutely still deals to do that we're going to make money on. I'd say the key points to cover for are, of course, inflation. You have to have a CPI indicator in any lease that you do. You can't just do 2 or 3% annual increases. And then for, for things like the recession, we were buying in 2008 and making good money. There are people that bought in 2006 at the height of the market and still made good money, right? So again, going back to the fundamentals of real estate, you're going to make good money no matter what you do. If you buy at the high and you have no plan and you're just going into it going, well, real estate's a good investment. Let me buy some real estate. You're not going to do well. You got to go in with a plan and a good structure that is going to let you adapt to what happens with the market, right? I would say industrial is, again, it's the backbone and industrial is growing as an asset class. So it's probably going to be hit less than, I I know you're a multifamily guy. I don't want to trash talk multifamily, but because multifamily has been bought up so much, uh, we all see it. We all know that like how much more up can rents really go Mm -hmm. when a lot of people can't afford those rents. I truly believe, and I've actually been saying this for years, that multifamily, (laughs) because of investors like us, is going to take a hit this time. And I think it's going to take a big hit. I don't know how that's going to play out because, I mean, ultimately you're talking about where people live. But I think that, you know, whether it's the government stepping in or something happening, there's the multifamily side is going to be, there's going to be a correction to say the least. Interesting. It's, uh, you know, I I take no offense by that. We're here to share a variety of perspectives. And I, I certainly take your point, especially, like I said, with the cost of capital going up, that alone, I think should be a concern for most uh, real estate investors out there, at least those of us 100%. who do use debt in our deals. So there's that on one side. On the other hand, in the more macro sense, there is a huge shortage of housing in most areas, but that's a macro, that's a longer term type of thing. That doesn't mean there can't be short-term pain. 100%. So- yeah, no, we have to. We have to. I think, like you said earlier, uh, do our best to take emotions out of the equation. Hopefully, do our best to take our our vested interests out of the equation and try to make the best objective judgment about any given deal uh, that we can. If I can uh, try to try to interpret uh, what you're saying earlier, so great. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Dimitri, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. 
Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I've been blessed to have done really, really well. I'd say I'd say the best investment I ever made was about 33 acres off of Las Vegas Boulevard and Lamb, rezoned it from a low density industrial to a high de- or to a medium density industrial, sold it two years later for like 2.5 multiple. Nice. So that one went really well. You know, that post serial deal that we talked about earlier, that one is currently going very well. So most of them have been pretty good. There, there's, there's really only one that's gone really sideways, which I have a feeling you're going to ask me about the work. <laughs> well, uh, one insight I have here is I don't eat a whole lot of cereal, but if anybody out there has noticed the flavor of Weetabix has changed within the last couple of years, I uh, hear their manufacturing moved locations. I don't know. Maybe that's something to do with it. Don't mean to throw shade at actually like Weetabix. I, I do. I do want to say one thing. Yeah. I tr- I should have. I'm still kicking myself that I didn't negotiate free cereal for life <laughs> that deal because I really could have probably. <laughs> nice. So yeah. we had the best investment. It could have been that you know that would have been even better for for free cereal for the rest of your life. But oh well, oh, yeah. you made enough money, you you can afford cereal. So we had the best investment. That we get other side of that coin. The worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment, I know exactly which one. And anybody who knows me knows about this particular one. We bought a building in 2016, 17 in Adelanto, California. And we leased it out to a cannabis operator. It was the first deal that we had ever leased out to a cannabis operator. There was so much corruption in that town. Mm. In fact, the mayor of at that time is actually in federal prison <laughs> for corruption. Jeez. So in any case, the, the, the folks that we leased to, not going to name any names, obviously, but they essentially tried to extort us. It turned into a massive lawsuit, like costing, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands, maybe close to a million. Like it was bad, right? And they were holding our building hostage and they were coming over to my house and you know trying to threaten my family. It was messed up. Like to say the least, they, they actually threatened to throw me off of a yacht at some point. Wow. Um, not like in the movies, there was actually a <laughs> congressman and a bunch of political donors there. So I didn't feel like I was actually going to get thrown off a yacht, but the threat was there. In any case, we ended up long story short of it. Uh, it was really bad. And my partners were freaking out like, Hey, you know, is this ever going to get better? About a year and a half of hell. And then we got them out. We got a new tenant in. New tenants started paying rent, so we're solid. Again, we bought it in all equity so we could weather the storm, but ooh, that was a storm and a half, to say the least. So you had mentioned early on in our conversation about uh, doing these cannabis deals, but only as landlord-tenant situation. I imagine mm-hmm. maybe that had something to do with, with, with that. I don't know. No, it's still a landlord-tenant deal, but you know the, the structure of our leases has definitely gotten... I mean, it was it was always what we thought was ironclad, but now we have. I'll, I'll I'll say it like this: because of that situation, my legal infrastructure has become much more robust, and I talk to way too many attorneys way too often. So, <laughs> and it, it's funny. I, I will say this as as a lesson learned from it: if I had spent maybe an extra five thousand, maybe ten thousand, in hindsight being twenty twenty, probably would have saved me about a million. So we did use lawyers, but you know, 
we did it like it was a regular we did it like it was a regular lease and it wasn't it wasn't a regular lease we had to do custom so we should have created custom from the get-go now we do but lesson learned yeah turn a bad into a good i suppose yep my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned about business and investing it always boils down to the relationships you know we like to we like to say that you know oh that guy's the most you know intelligent person in the room or this person's the you know they were born into blah 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 or you know they're such a hard worker or all of these things that we like to say and you look on I don't have social media but uh, you know when you look on social media and you see all these inspirational things of you know you can do it just get up at four in the morning and go to sleep at midnight and just you know work hard and blah blah all that's true but it really boils down to the relationships who do you know how well do you know them can you joke around can you have a fun time you know if you know people that are making things happen and you're having a good time together you're laughing you're joking you're socializing and then you're talking business you're going to get really high quality business done if you're constantly pushing and trying to sell and you're you're the guy that nobody really wants to be around because you're always kind of trying to sell something people don't want to hang around you and the best deals will pass you by because you won't even see them. So relationships, genuine, true, genuine relationships make literally that's how the world goes round. Wow. Love it. Great lesson for folks out there. And and thank you for joining us today for folks out there who uh, like to learn more, would like to track you down, would like to get in touch. Where can they find you? I know not social media, but maybe there's uh, somewhere else they can uh, get in touch with you. Well, they can go on uh, my website, Boscht, B-O-S-H-T dot com. We do have a contact us page and get in touch with anyone from my team. And yeah, they can, they can even set up a call with me if they have questions about industrial, if they have questions about investing. I love helping people out. If, it's, if we can do something together, great. If not, I know a lot of great people like yourself to be able to refer people over to depending on what people want to do. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.